Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up, or inaccessible. And it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. So... Live your life that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Trouble no one for their religion. Respect others in their view. And demand that they respect yours too. Love your life. Perfect your life. Beautify all things your life. Seek to make your life long and its purpose in the service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day when you pass over the great divide. My guest today is the international award-winning author or editor of 17 books on the American Civil War and the American West Dr. Peter Cousins. He retired after a 30-year career as a Foreign Service Officer for the U.S. Department of State. Prior to joining the Foreign Service, he served as a captain in the United States Army. His book, The Earth is Weeping, the epic story of the Indian Wars for the American West, received the 2017 Gilder Learman Prize in Military History and the Caroline Bancroft Prize in Western History. The Earth is Weeping was chosen by Smithsonian Magazine as one of the top 10 history books of 2016. All of Cousins' books have been selections of the Book of the Month Club, History Book Club, and or the Military Book Club. He was a frequent contributor to the New York Times Disunion series and has written for America's Civil War, Civil War Times Illustrated, MHQ, Cowboys and Indians, BBC World Histories, The Wall Street Journal, and Smithsonian, among other publications. He has served as a juror for the prestigious Lincoln Prize and is a member of the advisory board of the Buffalo Bills Center of the American West. His most recent work is Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. Cousins brings us to the forefront of the chaos and violence that characterized the young American Republic when settlers spilled across the Appalachians to bloody effect in their haste to exploit lands won from the British in the War of Independence. And we are very pleased to have the decorated author with us today. Welcome, Dr. Cousins. How are you? I know you told me not to call you doctor, but I spent a lot of time in the military, so I just like stand on protocol, I guess. (laughs) I did did too, but we can skip the protocol today. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. I think in our conversations, I told you that we had a local connection to this story. We found a sword in the wall, 
And we traced that back and we found out that the sword that was discovered inside of a wall in Hannibal, Missouri, when they were tearing down a building, belonged to William Ruddle or William Riddell. When we researched the family, we discovered that William's grandfather, Stephen, had been captured by the Shawnee as a boy and was raised in the tribe as a brother to Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa, which, of course, takes us straight into your research and this story. No, it's just a remarkable connection, but the more so because Stephen Riddell, who was captured by Shawnee Indians and, and their British allies, captured at the age of 12. He was adopted into the Shawnee tribe and became an intimate friend of Tecumseh and grew up with Tecumseh and fought with Tecumseh in Tecumseh's early early battles with encroaching frontiersmen until around age 30 or so. And then he decided to return to his family in Kentucky and Tecumseh posed no objection. And what's really remarkable is that Riddell, later in life, left a very fulsome memoir of his time with Tecumseh, and it's probably the, really the single best source of information on Tecumseh as a young man. It's absolutely invaluable. So that's a really, a really neat connection. Peter, it is tradition here to accompany the discussion with a special brew. Today, we have Tippecanoe Common Ale from the Lafayette Brewing Company of Lafayette, Indiana. This is a unique red ale that features pale and crystal malts with a generous helping of amarillo hops. The end result is a beautiful red amber ale that is one of the favorites at the Lafayette Brewing Company. Remember, the best way to enjoy an episode is with one of our featured brews. I would also like to ask you to subscribe to the podcast. Simply hit the subscribe button on the podcast directory that you use and get new material right away, right when it's published. Subscribing, it is the only way to get those new shows right away. And to the ever-expanding list of supporters and listeners from 60 countries, hundreds of cities across the United States, I have to say thank you. And now, I raise my Tippecanoe common ale very high. And to the Shawnee brothers that stood boldly for their way of life, I have to say cheers. So in regards to the origins of the Shawnee, what are some aspects of their culture and what was the nature of their early history? Well, the Shawnee were an Algonquin language speaking tribe, and as were most of the tribes in the Midwest, you know, modern Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, they were collectively known as the Eastern Woodland Indians. And they had common characteristics among all the tribes, which actually enabled them to get along better than a lot of the tribes in the American West. The Shawnee were unique, however, in one sense, and they were a a really peripatetic tribe. They were dispersed as a tribe in the early 1600s by the Iroquois Indians who invaded the Ohio Valley, searching for more pelts and furs to trade with the British and to, you know, to establish control over the Ohio Valley. And the Shawnees, they became a fragmented roaming people and who were very, very seldom united as a tribe and really only, only for a brief time just before Tecumseh's birth and through part of his life were they completely united as a people. They were not inherently a warlike people. They practiced both hunting and agriculture. They lived in fixed villages, unlike the tribes in the West. 
They were divided into five principal divisions, each of which had its own particular responsibilities or obligations within the tribe. Again, they were not inherently warlike, but they were sort of forced to be to uh, stake out land for themselves. And they didn't return to the Ohio Valley and reunite until the 1750s, only to disperse again within another 50 years. The American Revolution had a direct impact on the Shawnee. Was Tecumseh present for George Rogers Clark attack on the tribe in 1780? And if so, how did that encounter affect Tecumseh and the Shawnee in general? He was. Tecumseh and his younger brother, Tengswatawa, the prophet, both experienced a number of forced relocations as the villages in which they lived were attacked by Americans, by you know Kentucky militia or other American expeditions. And they were pushed farther and farther north into Ohio, away from the Ohio River and up into northern Ohio. I mean, and that was a very traumatic, of course, obviously, you know, on a 12-year-old boy to undergo an attack like that. He may have been one of the young men to to fight, to repel the first attack made against his village. That's, that's uncertain. But one of the greatest impacts of not only Clark's operations, but, but those of, of other Kentucky and American militia units in the 17, early 1780s and mid-1780s was these attacks, not only did it cause the Shawnee to fall back deeper into Ohio, but it again was the catalyst for the tribe to break up again. And nearly half of the Shawnee decided that it wasn't worth fighting for their Ohio homeland. And they moved west across the Mississippi River into present-day Missouri, which was then the property of Spain and were, were granted you know, asylum, so to speak, by the Spaniards. And Tecumseh and Tengswatawa's mother was one of those who migrated west. And she left her two young sons in the care of her eldest daughter. And that, that had to have been very traumatic for both of them. So Tecumseh is at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. Would you provide an overview of the battle, who was involved, and what were some of the key aspects of the treaty at the conclusion of the conflict? These treaties are convoluted and confusing. And in most cases, to put it bluntly, the Americans just take advantage of the Indians and never intend on living up to the promises in the treaties? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of any offhand in which the Americans didn't take advantage of the tribes or didn't violate the treaty in one way or another. That's just sort of the, the sad reality of treaty making. Fallen Timbers, it was a battle that was fought at the behest of President George Washington after the confederated tribes of the Midwest, a number of, of tribes, including the Shawnee, joined together to combat white encroachment in the Ohio Valley, and they dealt a very decisive defeat to the Americans in 1791, a battle that's called St. Clair's Defeat, in which the majority of the very small existing American army was annihilated in the battle. And so it took three years for the Americans to regroup, properly train an army capable of fighting the Confederated Indians. And it was led by Mad Anthony Wayne, met the Indians in battle at a place called Fallen Timbers in northern Indiana. And Tecumseh at the time, he at the battle, he was a minor war leader at best. He was still a, a young man. He was 26 years old 
commanded maybe a dozen warriors, but he already was so highly regarded that the leader of the Shawnee contingent in Fallen Timbers gave Tecumseh the honor of forming the vanguard to resist the American attack. And Tecumseh acquitted himself very well. And what was a decisive defeat for the Indians? I mean, they, they, they were shattered in the battle and forced to, to sue for peace. But Tecumseh performed very well. So he emerged from the battle with an enhanced reputation. The treaty that followed was a very hard treaty for the Indians, the Treaty of Greenville. It accorded to the United States the better part of modern Ohio and uh, really enabled Ohio to fill up with settlers pretty quickly and realistically ended the Indians' hopes of regaining the Ohio Valley, that is to say, regaining all of modern Ohio and um, pushing white settlement back south of the Ohio River and you know east of the Appalachians. So it was it was a decisive defeat and the treaty held for a number of years actually. It held for oh I would say uh at least at least twenty almost twenty years in Ohio. But in the interim, President Thomas Jefferson had the governor of the Indiana Territory, which then included Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, had him conclude a number of uh, of treaties that took away Indian land elsewhere in Ohio and in Indiana and Illinois. So that's kind of it in a, in a, long, in a large nutshell. So if you take that battle and some of the corresponding treaties that you have mentioned, where the Indians were taken advantage of, the tribes were scattered, their confidence must have been shattered. So I'd like to paint a picture for the rise of Tinkswatawa, the other part of your book, The Prophet. And I'm picturing Tinkswatawa sitting, staring into a fire to the point of a coma, an actual coma, thinking maybe about his personal failures or the loss of dignity, not being the man maybe that he hoped he would be, and how that coincided with the failures and loss of dignity of the Shawnee in general, the alcoholism, the disease, depopulation. It seems like the Shawnee people at that point are more than ready for a transcendent message like Tinkswatawa. Well, it wasn't simply the Shawnee people. His message resonated far beyond the Shawnee tribe. In fact, most of his followers were from other tribes. So the tribes in the modern Midwest, the Potawatomi, the Delaware, the Ojibwa, otherwise known as the Chippewa, all these tribes had, had suffered similarly in the way you described. And all, to a varying degree, felt a sense of cultural disillusion, a sense of loss of purpose, loss of direction. And again, in the face of, you know, white encroachment on their land and the attendant disease, alcoholism that accompanied that. And so his message, which really, it was very complex, but in essence, he was calling for a spiritual and cultural rebirth of the Indian people of the Midwest and a parting of the ways with the Americans, not violently, but to observe anything that smacked of the Americans, American goods, American products, and really, again, return to a pure way of life. And his message, it was, it made him, I think, without a doubt, the most influential Indian prophet in American, Native American history. And prophets were very important throughout Native American history. 
but his message, it spread throughout the Midwest, all the way into Minnesota. It's pretty amazing. And of course, Tenskwatawa provides that spiritual spark. But what does the great leader Tecumseh do with the message? Because that's an, an important part of the spread of those beliefs. How successful is he at coalescing so many decentralized groups? I mean, it seems hard to convince a single clan, let alone a division or even harder, a tribe or someone, as you mentioned, completely outside of your area, maybe in Minnesota. The tribes were very decentralized, even again within a particular tribe. Chiefs had no real means of enforcing compliance to their desires or to their mandates. Uh, every Indian was free to follow his own his own conscience. I mean, these were all the ultimate democratic societies. But Tank Patawa's message was sufficiently powerful that he attracted elements of upwards of a dozen tribes. And initially, Tecumseh accepted Tank Patawa's creed as being divinely inspired. I have no doubt of that. And was really a mouthpiece of Tenkswatawa for the first oh, two or three years of the movement. And the movement, again, was initially spiritual and cultural in nature. What Tecumseh did, as William Henry Harrison, the governor of the larger Indiana Territory, negotiated a series of really fraudulent treaties that, that deprived the, the Indians of a great deal of the remaining land in the Midwest. What he did was use Tangswatawa's creed as an entree to convert the alliance into a political and military alliance to stand together against any further attempts by the United States to obtain land, what remained of Indian land in the Midwest, by treaties negotiated with a few chiefs from a few of the tribes. I mean, he believed that the Indians should stand united that the land belonged to all of them, and no land should be sold without the agreement of all the tribes. He took Tenkswatawa's religious, social, cultural creed, and then took it a step further into this political military alliance. He never, I mean, he eventually, as war came, he supplanted Tenkswatawa because he was unquestionably the finer political and military leader of the two. But he never truly replaced Tenkwatawa. Their relationship was symbiotic, and really, they both played significant roles in the alliance that ultimately emerged. So Thomas Jefferson has a vision, too. I don't think he stared into a fire and came out on the other side, but his vision of America was one of an empire of liberty, spreading democracy, massive continental agrarian society. Indiana literally means land of Indians, so this is an immediate problem for Jefferson's vision. You can't really have this massive agrarian democratic society spreading across the continent of small farms without Indiana and Illinois becoming states. So it seems like there's a collision of those two visions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jefferson's naive and some consider it well-intentioned. The jury, I think, is still out on that. But his notion was to civilize, quote-unquote, the Indians and introduce them to Christianity, to modern farming methods, to pull them away from their hunting, the hunting portion of their economy, and just turn them into pure farmers with the men doing the farming, when traditionally that was a woman's role. His thinking was that if they all became farmers, they would need far less land 
and that land would be available then to white yeoman farmers to spread his empire of liberty, as you say. Of course, that got that ignored the reality that the Indians had no desire to change their way of life whatsoever. And he also had, there were nefarious aspects to it. He wanted the Indians to buy goods only from government factories, which were essentially trading centers, such that the Indians would fall so deeply into debt that they would be compelled to sell land to make good on their debts. He was pushing the envelope just short of war to try to obtain as much land as, as possible. And the agent for that was William Henry Harris. That actually leads me to my next question, because America's vision for the future, as you had just laid out, and the practical politics of the day bring William Henry Harrison into conflict specifically with the Shawnee brothers. These competing visions that can't coexist leads to the Battle of Tippecanoe. The battle is often referred to as a great American victory, but that's just not true. It's more of a draw, if anything. So why do the school textbooks get this battle so wrong? I think it's because even at the time, there was a great deal of dissent to Harrison's claim that it was a great decisive victory. That is to say, among people in the know in Indiana. But he did a very good job of selling his version of the battle to the James Madison administration in, in Washington and selling it as a victory. And his version of the battle prevailed. Those on the ground, the governors of other territories, Illinois Territory, the Missouri Territory, Indian traders out in the hinterland, they saw it for what it was. I mean, at best, it was a stalemate. It was an unprovoked attack by Harrison on the Shawnee Brothers village of Prophetstown in Indiana. Unprovoked. Again, it was a, a stalemate at best. I mean, the Indians did abandon the village, and it was burnt by Harrison. But when, as soon as he withdrew, they reoccupied the ground. More importantly, what that battle did, by Harrison's launching that aggressive attack on Tenskwatawa, it convinced a lot of Indians who were wavering as to whether or not to join the Shawnee Brothers Alliance, particularly Indians who were farther removed from the immediate seat of conflict, that is to say, Indians in Illinois, in Wisconsin, again, who weren't yet directly threatened as those in Ohio and Indiana were. It caused them to join the Shawnee Brothers Alliance for revenge, for lost kinsmen, even if they themselves had not supported the cause. And also, I think it showed them, it showed them sort of the handwriting on the wall that if we don't join the Shawnee Brothers and fight now further from our homes, the Americans are going to be on our doorstep eventually. So it, it really was a bonus for the Shawnee Brothers in terms of recruiting followers. So in that sense, it was strategically, I would think it was a defeat for the Americans. The thing about it is, though, Tenskwatawa had this vision and predictions about the Battle of Tippecanoe, and those do not come to pass. Does that undermine his ability to inspire the Shawnees or his credibility in any way after his visions don't come to pass? Not really. And uh, his visions, I mean, he didn't want to fight the battle against William Henry Harrison when Harrison appeared before Prophetstown. And his visions were partially successful. He predicted that there would be a great darkness, that there would be, you know, that the American camp would be illuminated strangely and, and through divine intervention that would make the Americans more susceptible to as targets. And those things transpired because the Americans had large bonfires burning, so the American soldiers were silhouetted. The Indians, however, did not follow the tactical plan that he and the war leaders laid out. 
And most importantly, and what most Indians acknowledge subsequently is that really they just didn't have enough ammunition to carry the day. They broke contact, not principally because Tanks Fatawa's visions did not come true fully, but because they were out of ammunition. Tanks Fatawa had a ready excuse for why his magic did not carry the day. He said that one of his wives, who was menstruating, had touched a cooking implement that he had used. It may sound silly, but the Indians who believed in a separation of powers, divine powers between males and females, particularly they saw the power of menstruating women as extremely, extremely great and able to trump any powers that were accorded to men. They accepted that excuse. So Tenkwatawa was never, as some history has it, was not discarded or diminished that greatly by the defeated Tippecanoe. One point I want to make is that when you say Shawnee, Shawnee followers, and this is, this is a important point overall, and interesting too, Tecumseh and Tenkwatawa only enjoyed the support of about 10% of their own tribe. Upwards of 90% of the Shawnee, about 900, there are only about 1,000 Shawnees still living east of the Mississippi River at this time. About nine-tenths of them had decided to try to accommodate themselves to the white way of life and had turned their back on Tecumseh and Tenkwatawa. And most of their followers were from other tribes in the Midwest. Again, the Shawnee congregated in, in, a, in a, a village uh, under another chief and tried to become an agricultural community in, in the way that Jefferson would have uh, would have wished. So the War of 1812 begins, and Tecumseh, Tenkswatawa, their Indian allies, side with the British. The conflict between the tribe and the American settlers had already started, of course. There's an interesting situation that occurs at the Siege of Fort Meigs, one that clearly demonstrates Tecumseh's character, I think. He stops a massacre and even chastises a British commander, saying he was unfit for command because he couldn't stop it. Could you explain what happens at the Siege of Fort Meigs? At this point, Tecumseh and Tenkwatawa's alliance is continuing to grow. He had about 2,500 warriors who gave their allegiance to him voluntarily, as was the case with any Indian leader. And in fact, as an aside, his, just to give an idea of how influential Tecumseh and Tenkwatawa's alliance were, at its apex, which is later on in the War of 1812, they counted approximately 6,000 warriors in their alliance. And if you compare that to the Indians in the American West, were not ever able to form alliances the way the tribes in the Midwest did. But at the apex of American Indian resistance in the West, which was the time of the Little Bighorn, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and their Sioux Cheyenne Alliance only mustered between 2,000 and 2,500 warriors, which was, again, less than half that the number that Tecumseh and mustered. So, again, this, this, we're speaking of really the most powerful Indian alliance that the Americans ever, ever confronted. To get back to the Battle of Fort Meigs, that was a major engagement in the War of 1812, overlooked. For your listeners who may be visiting northern Ohio at some point, the site has been rebuilt. It's, really, I think, the finest example of a frontier-era fort in existence today. They rebuilt the entire two-acre fortification, and it's really, really remarkable. It's in, it's in northwest Ohio, not too far from Toledo. But 
As for the battle itself, the British and their Indian allies, that is to say Tecumseh's alliance, fighting against William Henry Harrison, who occupied Fort Meigs, and also a, uh, a reinforcing force of 900 Kentucky volunteers who were really, they were poorly trained. They were not the best crop of soldiers. To make a long story short, they were surrounded and ambushed by the Indians, and upwards of 600 of them were taken prisoner, and they were herded into the remains of an old British fort near Fort Meigs. At the time, Tecumseh was on another part of the battlefield directing other action when the Indians began to systematically massacre the captured Kentuckians. And when Tecumseh got wind of this, he rode to the site and through haranguing the Indians who were conducting this massacre of the prisoners and really, you know, beating them away with his, perhaps his coup stick or his tomahawk or war club, he was able to put a stop to it. And only a few dozen Kentuckians were massacred. And the several hundred who survived, many of them did recognize Tecumseh and realized that he had saved their lives. And when they were exchanged a few months later, they spread the news of Tecumseh's humanity and uh, his role in saving their lives. And this was taken up by the press nationwide. And so while Tecumseh was still an enemy of the United States fighting with the British, he was recognized as a humane and very much worthy opponent, so to speak, by the Americans. So it, it was quite a defining moment in the American perception of Tecumseh. So speaking of that, and going directly to William Henry Harrison's personal view of Tecumseh as a warrior and a leader, I believe he said he could have forged an empire like the Aztecs or something like that. So could you speak to William Henry Harrison's personal view of Tecumseh? Yeah, it was kind of a conflicted view. I mean, Harrison negotiated with Tecumseh on two major occasions before they finally clashed in the War of 1812. And he recognized, you know, the charismatic side of Tecumseh, the, the influence he had over his followers, his eloquence, his determination, his drive. And so this, on the one hand, he, he likened him just almost to an Indian Caesar. On the other hand, he realized that, I mean, this was a person I, I have to defeat if I'm going to realize my and the administration's desire to prevail in the Midwest. And so he recognized that Tecumseh was a superior personage as an Indian leader, and certainly the, you know, the most uh, charismatic and influential Indian leader. So he respected that and respected him as an enemy, but he realized that you know, he was going to have to fight the man if he wanted to continue to uh, chop away at Indian lands. And particularly after the War of 1812 broke out and, and Tecumseh and his brother decided to side with the British as being the, really their only hope of achieving and preserving a, a sustainable homeland. So Tecumseh is killed at the Battle of the Thames in 1813. What happens in the battle? Are there any military reports that you could rely on when you were doing your research that tells you how Tecumseh actually died and what happened in the battle? And then finally, that loss of Tecumseh, that transformational leader, how did it impact that alliance that he had helped to forge? His death is, uh, his body was never discovered. He died fighting in a deep swamp, principally against the Kentucky Volunteer Regiment. I mean, there was gun smoke was, was hanging heavy over the battlefield. And it was, I mean, it was a complete melee in smoke and in marsh. Nobody really knows 
who killed Tecumseh, a future vice president of the United States, Richard Mentor Johnson, who led the Kentucky Regiment involved. He did not personally claim responsibility, but it was accorded to him by his supporters. I think it was very unlikely that he he would have been the one to kill Tecumseh because he'd been shot several times already by the time Tecumseh was killed. But I was able to piece together through military reports and Indian testimony. I mean, the indisputable fact that Tecumseh was killed and approximately where he was killed in the field of battle. But as Tenskwatawa, many years later, in talking to Lewis Cass, who was a general at the battle and then it was a future governor of the Michigan Territory, he and Cass agreed over a conversation that, that no one really could say, not even Tenskwatawa, who precisely killed Tecumseh. Be that as it may, his death, it led to really the the disintegration of the alliance was already disintegrating by the time of the Battle of the Thames because the British were forced to withdraw after the Battle of Lake Erie. The British were forced to abandon Michigan and and also their position in westernmost Ontario and fall back deeper into Ontario. That in itself led a large number of the Indians to defect from Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa's alliance so that by the time of the Battle of Thames, it was reduced from nearly 6,000 warriors to only about 500. So it was already unraveling. Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa chose to follow the British as being really their, their last best hope. But when Tecumseh died, the alliance, it pretty much fizzled. There were only maybe two or 300 warriors left, and no, no clear leader emerged. Tenskwatawa was not up to the task. The Indians fought with the British and a couple more engagements, but never again were a, were a force to be reckoned with in the Midwest. The death of Tecumseh was the death knoll of, of Indian resistance in the Midwest, which, of course, in turn, turn opened the way to the settlement, the American settlement west of the Mississippi. There was an alternate reality, as if we were in the Marvel universe. I know that's a stretch. <laughs> But in that reality, the British, in effect, would have won the War of 1812 and Tecumseh would not have been killed and he would have succeeded. If that situation had occurred, could the British, for example, have helped create a new nation, a, I guess, pan-Indian nation of those groups in, say, Michigan as a buffer between Canada and America? How far-fetched is that idea? When I started the work, I actually approached it with something of a fatalistic attitude believing that Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa's defeat was inevitable and that the British and their Indian allies really had no chance of doing what what you're suggesting. But as I researched the book, I realized that on a number of occasions during the War of 1812, well before the Battle of the Thames, the British and Tecumseh very easily could have won. And, I mean, the British were sincere in their commitment to, if they prevailed in helping the Indians create a a buffer state between British Canada and the United States that would essentially contain not only all of Michigan, which was lightly, lightly settled by Americans, but also parts, you know, the better part of northern Indiana and perhaps a sliver of Ohio. That was not unrealistic. The problem was events on the ground for the British didn't play out the way they might have principally because the British were focused on defeating Napoleon in Europe and were not able to provide the number of troops necessary to the conflict against the United States 
to enable the British to prevail. The British commander who was allied with Tecumseh in, in what was then Western Ontario begged for more troops, begged for more ships to man Lake Erie, and they just weren't available. And had they been, I really think, given the inferior quality of American generalship, that the British Indians would have prevailed. And even with the situation as it was, they came close on a couple of occasions, as I describe in the book. I think that they could have sustained a buffer state, uh, at a minimum in, in Michigan, for, I mean, at least a generation. And certainly, if not, you know, had created a permanent Indian state of one sort or another, it would have delayed the growth of America by at least a generation, perhaps two, and delayed the settlement of the American West. So I don't think it's far-fetched at all to imagine a British and Indian victory, particularly if there'd been no Napoleonic Wars. We talked about the death of Tecumseh in 1813. What happens to Tinkswatawa, though? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to give away the book because <laughs> it's the uh, the last chapter of the book is dedicated to the remaining years of Tinkswatawa's life, and he did li- did live for uh, more than 20 years after his brother's death. So I, re- I really don't want to. Spoil it too much. Yeah, let's let let's yeah let them get the, let them read it. It's it's more interesting that way anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let me let me put it this way: I, I consider the last chapter of the book to be one of the most poignant of the entire book, and, and to see what actually befell Tengswatawa and his people. It's a sad and moving conclusion to the story. So I'll just tease readers by saying that uh, Tengswatawa died in what is now modern-day Kansas City, Kansas. So they'll have to read the last chapter to figure out how he got from Ohio to Kansas. (laughs) Well, I think that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) So you have researched and written books on both Eastern and Western Indians. The story of the Eastern Indians is often forgotten, even though their power, as you had mentioned before, in the case of the Shawnee brothers, surpassed any of the power that was coalesced out West. Does popular culture say an emphasis on the Wild West, John Wayne movies and John Ford movies and so forth, does that take a focus away from the Indians in the East? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Does popular culture then rob the Eastern Indians of their place in history in a way? I think so. And particularly, not only their place in history, uh, apart from their conflicts with the United States, which was a very rich a very rich history. And, and they, the Indians east of the Mississippi River, I actually find them to be a, a, a more fascinating society than in some ways than the Indians in the, in the West. Yeah, it definitely robs them of their due place in history and also their success uh, in combating the United States. I mean, if you take all the post-Civil War Indian wars of the West and wrap them together, all the, you know, the vital dramatic battles that were fought in the West, like Little Bighorn and the Washita and so forth, you take all the army fatalities from those battles and put them all together, they don't much exceed the losses that the United States Army suffered in St. Clair's defeat alone in 1791. So the, the battles in the, in the Midwest, like Fallen Timbers and like St. Clair's defeat, I mean, these, these were compared to what occurred in the West for all their drama. I mean, they, they, were, they were pitched battles and uh, in terms of loss of life much more profound than those in the West. But popular culture has, has, has steered us westward. Yeah, there's no question. And not only that, the power of the United States Army. The Army in the late 1700s, early 1800s is almost non-existent. 
the militias that are out there are very poorly trained, as you mentioned, with some of those Kentuckians, as opposed to after the Civil War, you had experienced soldiers and they didn't even come close to marshalling the resources that they could have if they needed to. So the status of the army is completely different as well. Right. I mean, the, the, it, this was by design. I mean, the, the founding fathers and, and this feeling existed really up until the Civil War to varying degrees. They feared a large standing army as being contrary to uh, interests of democracy. So they intentionally relied on a militia system and keeping a, a small standing army to, to prevent you know, an overthrow of democracy. So the quality of, of, of the U.S. Army and quantity both was far inferior during the, uh, the wars against the Indians in the Midwest than it was you know, in the post-Civil War American West. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's an outstanding book on two really fascinating figures, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. And many times they're presented completely wrong in our history, and your book corrects that. And of course, if you want to find out the end, you got to get the book and read it. You won't be disappointed. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. I think I could have subtitled the book rather than The Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. I just as easily could have you know, subtitled it The Heroic Struggle for America's Heartland because Tanks Fatah went to Kumsa and the conflicts in which they were engaged you know, beginning with fighting Kentuckians in the post-revolutionary war era up until Tecumseh's death. I mean, that was the essential struggle for the American Midwest. And so it, it defined the future of the entire Midwest. It's a story that I'm a transplanted Midwestern myself. I'm from the Chicago suburbs and went to school at uh, Knox College in Galesburg, not too far from you. It's a story that we Midwesterners need to know better, I think. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I would like to thank my guest today, historian and author, Dr. Peter Cousins. And if you would like to get his book, Tecumseh and the Prophet, The Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation, simply click on the link in the description below. It has been 20 years since a book on the Shawnee leaders has been written, and this one is absolutely excellent. Our featured brew was Tippecanoe Common Ale from the Lafayette Brewing Company of Lafayette, Indiana. If you liked our talk today, please share this episode with a friend. And remember, subscribe to the podcast. All you got to do, hit that subscribe button and get new episodes immediately when they're released. It's the only way to get those new shows right away. For more information on the podcast, like the History of Go-Go Facebook page and check out the YouTube channel as well. The music was provided by the outstanding North Carolina band Bones Fork. And if you want to find out what they got going on, just click on the link. It's in the description also. And finally, to the list of listeners and supporters from 60 countries, hundreds of cities across America, I have to say one more time, thank you. There are many more great episodes on the way with discussions on the greedy queen, Queen Victoria, Greek poems and the gods, a memoir of plunder, family property, and Nazi treasure, John C. Calhoun, American heretic, and D-Day girls. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Goga. So, live your life that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Trouble no one for their religion. Respect others in their view and demand that they respect yours too. Love your life. 
perfect your life, beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and its purpose in the service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day when you pass over the great divide. Always give a word or a sign of salute when meeting or passing a friend, even a stranger, when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. When you arise in the morning, Give thanks for food and the joy of living. If you see no reason to give thanks, the blame lies only on yourself. Abuse no one and no thing, for abuse turns the wise into fools and robs the spirit of its vision. When it comes your time to die. Be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero.